Hello everybody, this is Julian Charles of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to an interview I conducted a few days ago with Dr. Paul Meyer, who is a professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University. And I had the opportunity to speak with him about the evidence for the existence of Jesus in the ancient literature outside of the New Testament, and also on the historical reliability of the New Testament itself. And as you will hear, it was a very informative and entertaining conversation. However, unfortunately, we had a rather severe technical difficulty with the phone line, um, and that meant that there was some distortion of Dr. Meyer's voice every now and again. And you will hear that his voice at times comes in and goes out in rapid succession, which makes it really quite difficult to listen to. Now, I did ask him to repeat various sections, but of course there's a limit to what you can actually ask a guest to do. So what I've done is to spend quite a lot of time editing quite extensively to make it sound as listenable as possible. However, it still does sound a little bit odd in places. I've not managed to get rid of all the distortion, and there are some moments when you will hear Dr. Meyer apparently saying some things in a rather cryptic way and with some abrupt endings at times and uh, and occasionally you'll hear a word that sounds like it's been substituted by another instance of that word in the conversation well that's all my attempt to make this as listenable as possible so please do bear that in mind if you ever feel that dr meyer is saying something a bit odd then it's probably as a result of my attempt to make it sound as good as possible another thing is that the mind renewed has recently started on facebook so if you do use facebook please consider giving us a like i think at the moment we have 10 likes which doesn't really give a fair impression really considering that the mind renewed has been in existence for over a year now and uh, you never know new listeners might be checking into facebook and thinking Oh, good heavens, it's only got 10 likes in the last year, so uh, <laughs> that's not really very fair. So, yes, please, if you do use Facebook, do give us a like and uh, help to remedy that situation. Anyway, next week, we should be talking once again to our friend Dr. Tim Ball, this time on the issue of peak water, which he believes is set to replace the scare of human-caused climate change and set to become the next UN environmental false alarm. And uh, the following week, uh, all being well, we'll be talking with Kevin Ryan about his book, Another 19. But for the moment, our interview with the energetic, entertaining and very informative Dr. Meyer. Hello, everybody. Julian Charles here again of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today, as part of our series here that we have on Christian apologetics, I'm very pleased indeed to be speaking with Dr. Paul Meyer, who is Russell H. Seibert Professor of Ancient History at Western Michigan University. And for over 50 years, he has been teaching and researching, specializing in the analysis of ancient texts, archaeology, and the comparison of sacred and secular writings from the ancient Near East of the first century. He is the author of several books and hundreds of articles, both scholarly and popular, and he's a regular speaker on national radio and television in the US, and so it is a great pleasure to invite him onto this little show here in the UK. So, Dr. Meyer, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, Julian. 
Well, I wanted to have the opportunity to speak to you because over the last few years, especially since starting this program here, The Mind Renewed, I've become increasingly aware that there's a growing fashion for objecting to Christianity in various ways, um, often through attempting to challenge the Bible upon which the faith is based, of course. And my impression is that a great deal of this is coming from people who are not necessarily particularly well informed <laughs> you know, about the matters that they're presuming to talk about. So I thought it would be great to speak to you who are certainly very well informed as your research centres in many of these particular issues. So I want to ask you about a number of things, such as did Jesus exist? Is the New Testament to be trusted? And some of the questions that people often raise about these things. But I think if it's okay with you, would it be possible just to give us a little bit of detail, just a little bit about yourself? Tell us where you're coming from on this. How, how did you first get into doing this kind of research? Well, I've always been fascinated by the question of whether or not events that are reported in the Bible were reported also in secular literature from the ancient world. As a matter of fact, that is the reason why I went into ancient history. I wanted to explore the context in which the Gospels were and the Epistles were written to see if the evidence that comes from outside the Bible correlates with the interior evidence from the Bible itself. And I figured that if, they, if there are any points of tangency between the two, then we would be able to check one against the other. And if they agree, that's fine. If they disagree, then you'd have to believe only in the secular or the, the sacred. And I was uh, so delighted to find, quite frankly, that so many people and places and events inside of Scripture are also mentioned outside of Scripture. And in so many cases, the evidence correlates magnificently. So I thought this is a fascinating way to affirm the scriptural record. But the, the dividend that I hadn't anticipated was this. Sometimes we get even more information about a given biblical episode from the secular evidence than even is included in Scripture. And I'll give you several examples of that later on. Oh, that would be fascinating. Yes, I'd love to hear that. The first thing that I want to ask you about is one of the, the biggest things that uh, comes up, particularly on the Internet, I find, and that's the statement that's very often made, that Christianity is not really worth taking seriously at all, because after all, Jesus never existed. There's a, a, quite a well-known website called exactly that, JesusNeverExisted.com. And people often bring up people like George Wells and the famous quote by Bertrand Russell. So what's your view on this? Is it really doubtful that Jesus ever existed? Well, there has no, been no better documented life in all of human history than that of Jesus of Nazareth. So anyone claiming that Jesus never existed, even as a historical figure, is simply flaunting his ignorance. Uh, it, really, it's a case of a, a person... Just, I always tell my, my audiences that it, whenever this claim is made, it's an attempt to avoid serious arguments about whether or not Jesus was teaching the truth. And they think this shortcut will quickly end the discussion. A person make, claiming that Jesus never existed is simply flaunting, making public his absolute ignorance. And you say from your research that there's quite a, a good amount of evidence out there beyond the scriptures to indicate that Jesus did in fact exist, so evidence from antiquity. So I'm wondering, could you give us an idea of just how much evidence there is for this? Well, you know, I'm amazed, Julian, that, that Jesus even shows up in secular writings because he certainly wasn't famous at his birth or at his passion. Uh, this all comes later on as the Christian church grows. And yet, 
even in that all-important first century, Jesus' name does show up in secular evidence. Uh, let me just give you an example of where he shows up in secular Roman pagan historians. Now, these people, of course, have no brief for Christianity, and yet Tacitus, Cornelius Tacitus, the great first-century historian, talks all about what happened in Rome every year. You wouldn't write that kind of history today unless you're doing the almanac, but nevertheless, it was so valuable to have this evidence from the outside on what happened in a given year. Now, Tacitus, for example, tells us about the great fire of Rome under Nero and in the year 64. And then he explains that in order to save himself, Nero switched the blame to the Christians. That's the first time they're mentioned in secular history. And then he goes on, careful scholar that he is, to explain who are the Christians. Well, they were named for a Christ who was crucified by one of our governors, Pontius Pilate. And the pernicious superstition was almost extinguished until suddenly it gained new vigor. There, by the way, Julian, we have an outside demonstration of Easter Pentecost. Suddenly gained new vigor and flowed even as far as Rome, that common cesspool into which things hateful come from all over the Mediterranean. We don't have a Christian apologist here. We have one who hates the faith. But nevertheless, he's an honest historian. He's honest enough to say that there certainly was a historical figure named Jesus. And, you know, th this verse alone is a bone in the throat of all those critics who claim that Jesus never lived. And, of course, they've tried every way possible to dislodge this bone. They've claimed the Tacitus uh, had this interpolated into his text from Christians on the outside. That doesn't work. They've done computer studies on the grammar that Tacitus uses. It's the same. And nearly all ancient history scholars agree that, yes, that's authentic text. Okay, that's one. Then we got Suetonius. Uh, he also talks about what happened in the reign of Claudius, for example. And he says that in his reign, the punishment was inflicted on these Christians. And also that there was a riot in the Trans-Tiber area, that's region 14 in Rome, over the claims of Christ. Then we got Pliny the Younger, uh, who was writing about uh, events in the first century. And he says that uh, he, he writes a letter to the Emperor Trajan. And he says, uh, dear emperor, what do I do about these Christians? They get up early Sunday morning and they sing hymns to Christ as if he were a god. They're against the law, aren't they? Well, we have Trajan's answer in which he says, yes, they're plenty. Uh, they're against the law. And so if you can make a perfect case against them, I suppose the law has to be followed. Notice the weasel word. And then, of course, we have the Jewish rabbinic traditions. Uh, who, again, are not fans of Jesus. It's a hostile source. But nevertheless, they talk about an arrest notice for one Yeshua Hanotsri. He shall be stoned because he's practiced sorcery and lured Israel to apostasy. Well, nevertheless, he shows up historically. Then we have, of course, Flavius Josephus, my favorite non-biblical source. He gives us his incredibly important outside information on everything that happened among the Jews and the Romans in the first century and other centuries as well. He gives us the longest reference to Jesus in a book of his called Antiquities, chapter 18, or book 18. And then he also talks about two books later what happened to James, the brother of Jesus, 
uh, who was called the Christ. He was stoned to death by the Sanhedrin. So those are the six major outside references to hmm. Jesus as a historical figure in uh, first-century sources. There are more than that, but nevertheless, these are the all-important six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'd like to ask you a little bit more about Josephus, a very important Josephus quote that you just mentioned there. But one thing that people often do bring up about this kind of thing is they will say that, okay, there are references to Jesus in antiquity, but uh, how come there are not more? Isn't it possible that just these few that we have could have come from Christian tradition, and therefore they're not actually testifying to the existence of Jesus in some independent way? They come through Christian tradition, and there aren't many of them anyway. How, how would you respond to that? Okay, first of all, in terms of not many, that's no problem at all, simply because I've, I'm surprised there are any, quite frankly, in the first century. Uh, this is what you would expect. Uh, Palestine is the boondocks of the Mediterranean. It's not all important. Uh, the Romans were not concerned about what happened there. And yet, because of Josephus, uh, this great first century source, uh, he was more important than the Jews might have received uh, otherwise. And then in terms of Christian sources, this is ridiculous, simply because all of the sources that I've given you so far are non-Christian, are in many cases hostile to Christians, so that argument doesn't work at all. In fact, it works against uh, the argumentation that Jesus never existed. Okay, so turning to this uh, quote from the Antiquities of the Jews by Josephus, this has this famous section called the Testimonium Flavianum, and when you read this little section here, it gives the impression that uh, Josephus is actually calling Jesus the Messiah, and a lot of people say, well, as a consequence of this, this must be something that's added to Josephus. This wasn't originally written by Josephus, so how do you respond to that? Well, this is one time when the critics are right. I don't believe that material that claimed that Jesus was more than a man, he was the Messiah who rose from the dead, could have been written by a Jew who never converted to Christianity, and therefore I agree with the critics. And most Christian scholars have agreed that Josephus' famous reference had been tampered with. And we can trace it probably back to some well-meaning monk in the 3rd century who falsified a section in the Josephan text. Now, when I graduated from uh, seminary and also university, I was so intrigued by that problem that I took it upon myself to write to the world's ranking authority in Josephus. He was a British scholar, as a matter of fact, uh, a Jewish Jew, not a Christian Jew, named Dr. Paul Winter, London University. He was the world's ranking authority in Josephus. And I asked him two questions. I said, first of all, did he think that Josephus ever referred to the Christian Jesus because uh, the critics were saying, throw that entire passage out. Second question, if he thought that Josephus did refer to the Christian Jesus, how did he, as a scholar, think the original text of Josephus read? Well, I got an airmail letter back three weeks later. First question, yes, he was quite sure that Josephus did refer to the Jewish Jesus, a Christian Jesus, and secondly, using his good textual critical skills, he prized out a translation which I thought very convincing. Tragedy was Dr. Paul Winter died before he ever knew how close he had come, mm-hmm. because the great good news is that 
Professor Shlomo Pines, P-I-N-E-S, of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, discovered a manuscript tradition of Josephus which was not interpolated at that point, a different manuscript tradition, and it reads almost word for word like what Paul Winter predicted it would read if it were ever found. Wow. And so in my translation of Josephus, I wrote a condensation of the enormous literary production of Josephus down into one book. But here now is how the Josephus text at Antiquities, Book 18, Section 63, actually reads. About this time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many people among the Jews and the other nations became his disciples. Pilate, however, condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon their discipleship. They reported that he had come to life three days later, and that he was alive. Accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders, and the tribe of the Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to the present day. Now, this was written in the year 97 A.D., safely within the first century, and so it is powerful outside testimony, not only that Jesus lived as a historical figure, but that the Christian claims about him are echoed now in Josephus. So we can accept quite clearly then that those statements such as if indeed one ought to call him a man and he was the Messiah, those things are interpolations. They were added by some, as you say, some well-meaning scribe at some point. And now we actually have the evidence. Is it from an Arabic version of this passage that shows what the original was? It is from a very, very important translation by Agapius, an Arabic translation, a very faithful translator of a series of Greek sources that are now lost to us. And because this comports so beautifully with what scholars had previously said would be the original text, uh, most scholars accept this as absolutely authentic now. Wonderful. Yeah, that's a, a great example. Another thing that I want to ask you about is the uh, so-called uh, Gnostic literature that does mention Jesus. And of course, the most famous collection of this is the Nag Hammadi uh, collection from Egypt, and also about the New Testament apocryphal writings as well. Now, as you know, uh, many particularly uh, popular writers like Dan Brown have made the claim that these writings tell us things about Jesus that the early church suppressed. But by implication, if we want a fuller, rounder picture of who Jesus really is, then we need to take all these Gnostic things into consideration. Well, what's your view on these materials? Do you think they really do tell us much about the historical Jesus? <laughs> no, I'm sorry they don't. Uh, it's just simply amazing how so many people are making sort of a cottage industry out of the Gnostic Gospels. Elaine Pagels of Princeton, for example, Helmut Kester of Harvard, and others like camp followers like Dan Brown uh, will almost claim that there was a big uh, March Madness going on. They're down to the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, and the Big Four finally made it Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Not necessarily the best, and they went the Gnostic Gospels considered and so on. I have never understood this thraldom over the Gnostic Gospels because if you ever read one of them, you see how pathetic they are. Some of them are absolute word salad in which you can't find a declared <laughs> sentence in the whole document. Others are totally inconceivable, 
to be as part of the canon because they are running contradictory to the canonical Gospels. I, I really can't understand how they've gained such popularity. It's a lust for the novel. It's a lust for the sensational. It's a case of, then they're done that. Let's find something new and strange and over the top. Uh, this is the, the catering to sensationalism we find in scholarship today. All these Gnostic Gospels are late. They're derivative from the true Gospels. It's a case of ancient novelists trying to add lovely, sensational detail, every last one of them. Let me just give you, though, to give the devil his due, evaluating the most sober, the most reasonable of all the Gnostic Gospels, of course, as you well know, the Gospel of Thomas. Now, it's not a true gospel because we don't have narrative matrix, uh, as is the case of gospel, which has both narrative, connective prose, background, context, and then also dialogue. Uh, we have only dialogue in the Gnostic Gospels, basically. Here we have, in the Gospel of Thomas, we have 114 so-called sayings of Jesus. Of course, this got all the critical scholars uh, thrilled because now they thought they had found the famous Q source. Uh, no, since there's no narrative matrix to speak of. But we have fascinating sayings included by Jesus, supposedly, in this Gnostic collection. Some of them, I don't know, maybe by some random accident, some of them may be actual sayings of Jesus that never made the Gospels. There are some people who try to claim, anyway, some scholars who try to claim that the Gospel of Thomas, some of the sources for the Gospel of Thomas do actually go back to the first century. Do you think any of their arguments hold water? Well, not really. Don't forget, there are Gnostics around toward the end of the first century. That's right, because the Johannine letters refer to them. And so maybe by some accident in the end of the first century, uh, you, you might have some Gnostic writings. But we have people who want to gild the lily, people who are writing novels about biblical characters that go beyond Scripture right from the start. And, and so, well, I'm a biblical novelist myself in my books, Pontius Pilate and the Flames of Rome, but mine are very historical. I will include only people who actually lived and with their actual names. And I will never contradict known historical fact because... Well, whoever said it first said it best. Truth is stranger than fiction, and I, I will use only fiction for the dialogue, and I'll tell the reader where that fiction is. I think this is the way a historical novel ought to be written, but those Gnostic Gospels couldn't care less about the truth. They're simply out for sensation, so I don't care if one or two of these were written toward the end of the first century. They're all hokum. And as you say, they seem to be not really interested in history at all. It seems to be mostly about the sort of mystical sayings that are attributed to Jesus, but not much about the the actual context in which he must have lived. That's right, but also they're filling in the holes. For instance, everybody reads a biography that begins with childhood anecdotes and stories. They're always so thrilling to the reader. And so they felt that the true Gospels need this supplement. And so many of the Gnostic Gospels that were known for... Here, there are two categories of Gnostic Gospels. Those that were known for centuries, you know, ever since they were written, and those which were laterally discovered in, in 1940 at the time the Dead Sea Scrolls were coming to light, the Nagamati 
codices. And those are the ones we're making so much fuss about. But some were the infancy narratives that were there already from the second century. For example, one of the earliest is the Protevangelium of James, the first gospel of James, which is one of the earliest of the Gnostic gospels, early second century. And it influenced the others. And, you know, one would have thought that because they're the, that's the earliest, they would have been more accurate. But the early Gospel of James is pathetic uh, in terms of three people going to Bethlehem, Joseph, Mary, and then James, uh, the child of Joseph by a previous wife. And when they get to Bethlehem or near it, she's in a cave and gives birth there by a flash of light. They found a midwife to come and explore whether or not she was a virgin. The midwife gets a palsied hand, and Jesus' first miracle is to cure that hand. Give me a break. I mean, just junk. It's so disappointing that this earliest attempt to gild a lily is so far off track. Now, another perhaps even important slant on this is the uh, the kind of view that's uh, popularized by the first Zeitgeist movie. Um, this didn't start here, but it's popularized by Zeitgeist, and that's the, the idea that Jesus is essentially a mythological character cobbled together from various pagan sources, um, so that uh, we see many of the elements of Jesus' life apparently reflecting the stories of ancient deities from pagan mythology. So, you know, somebody who who is very familiar with ancient Near East studies, I've got, I've got to ask you, what's your reaction to this kind of thing? Well, the Zeitgeist movie, and many like it, are simply playing uh, what I call the game of parallelomania. <laughs> and that is to always find parallels to the biblical uh, documents, whether or not they're accurate parallels or not, the reader doesn't know, because the, the comparison isn't even made. For instance, there's a, a book by a, a terrible non-scholar in Canada called The Pagan Christ. Jesus is Isis from Egyptian records 20,000 years ago. Hello? Uh, there wasn't even in Egypt 20,000 years ago, and the art of writing doesn't come earlier than 4,000 B.C. Give me a break! I mean, you have these stupid claims, and then publishers, without any conscience, instead of checking out these claims, simply publish them. Uh, it, it's just so disappointing to see the, the low ethical mm. standards in publishers today, uh, and many of them, of course, uh, well, for instance, how could Doubleday, an American publisher, ever publish a Da Vinci Code by, by uh, Brown, who, who messes everything up? There is no occasion in which Jesus or Christ or Christianity or the church is mentioned that it's not a lie, or, or at least to give the man the benefit of uh, an unknowing falsehood. I mean, what happened to checking texts? Hmm. Well, what happened to ethics in publishing? I, I just don't know. I think what most amazes me about the kind of hypothesis in the Zeitgeist movie with this idea that it's, it's cobbled together is I don't un even understand how such a thing could happen within the Jewish matrix from which Christianity must have, 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 have arisen for it to even be possible to exist. I, I just don't know who could possibly have done this. Well, the answer is it, it didn't happen. It simply didn't happen. <laughs> and yes. again, uh, they will usually base their arguments on a long period of time 
in which myths can grow and things can be cobbled together, and that's what we have today. Now, that's the old German higher critical school in the last century. For example, in the Tübingen School, Bauer and other great scholars were claiming that the Gospel of John was probably written around 175 A.D. You know, these ridiculous claims. Uh, if you have enough time, I guess myth can develop. But look, let's look at the New Testament records, the earliest writing, as we should know, or not the Gospels, but, but Paul's letters. Absolutely. And so within 19 and a half years of the resurrection, Paul's talking about it to the people in Corinth. Now, 19 and a half years is not enough time for tall tales to develop and for mythology to be added. Give me a break. Mm-hmm. One of the earliest uh, fragments that we have from John's Gospel is dated to very, very early in the second century. Absolutely, and it's in England, the Rylands Papyrus, University of Manchester, you bet. Yeah, and I've got to ask you if you could just comment upon Joseph Atwill's book called Caesar's Messiah, the Roman Conspiracy to Invent Jesus. And I've got to ask you about this because his idea is that uh, the Romans were behind, uh, obviously behind Josephus, but also behind the creation of the Gospels as well, because they wanted to have uh, invent a Jesus who would be non-revolutionary and so be a source of political stability in Israel. Now, you as a as a scholar of Josephus, what do you make of that theory? Well, I, I think it is probably the, the least rational reconstruction of Jesus I've ever encountered. I, I can't imagine anything worse than what Atwell claims. He claims that the Romans invented Christianity as a counterpoise to Judaism. They were worried about the growth of Judaism. And so the Romans invented Christianity as a counterpoise. Please, there especially give me a break. The Romans hated the Christians under Nero, as you well know. They tried to eradicate them. And the Jews were religio licita. They were a legitimate religion in the Roman Empire. They didn't regard them as some great menace for which a counterpoise was necessary. I heard that well interviewed, and it's all a mystical jumble that he has. He always finds uh, reconstructions and figures of this, that, and the next thing. The poor guy got too much publicity. He shouldn't have gotten any. And why does a publisher publish this drivel? It's what it is. And he says that he gets his ideas from Josephus. No, no. He misreads several texts of Josephus. Uh, he then builds a, a great big case from a misinterpretation of a text, then builds on that misconstruction. Uh, it, it's the old argument that Hugh Schoenfield used years ago. Remember in the late latter part of the 20th century, Hugh Schoenfield's Passover plot got so much uh, mileage. Ain't nothing wrong with the hypothesis, let us suppose that. And then 30 pages later, since so-and-so did happen, see, then, then it becomes fact. And everybody forgets that it's a hypothesis. Okay, it would be lovely now to turn to something that's perhaps more positive. And uh, one of the disciplines that you're involved with in your research is biblical archaeology. So I wanted to ask you to what extent you think that the New Testament is corroborated by archaeology. I mean, when we went on holiday a few years ago to Israel and we were told by our guides, and I have to say they were really very knowledgeable people, these guides, um, that there's a great deal of archaeology that supports the New Testament text. And uh, we were 
most struck by finding at Caesarea, there was this inscription mentioning Pontius Pilate. That was a, a great moment. So could you give us an idea of some of the ways in which archaeology supports or, well, I don't know, perhaps even contradicts what the New Testament says? No question that archaeology, uh, the spade is the Bible's best friend. Old Testament as well. You know, you don't hear about the tremendous number of confirmations between which they find in the ground and, and what's found in the Bible. You hear only the sensationalist claims. For instance, one of them is Israel Finkelstein uh, in Israel, who loves to, by the way, saw off the limb in which he's sitting. <laughs> he does this all the time. His, his time grid is a century off of everybody else's time grid, and so naturally he can claim that uh, David didn't rule in splendor in Jerusalem. Ahab is responsible for all the Davidic uh, construction. Well, <laughs> Ahab comes 100 years after David. Yeah, as you say, this is the one you hear about when you watch the television. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and the result is garbage in, garbage out, see? Mm. Uh, but uh, fantastic discoveries are being made, not only the Pontius Pilate Stone, for example. But, Julian, I don't know if you know about it. How about the bones of the first biblical personality ever to come to life were discovered in 1990? Do you know who I'm talking about? Would it be Caiaphas? <laughs> yeah, good for you, because you're informed. But I kid you not. I, I will be talking to uh, a group of 200 clergy, and I will ask that question and only about 1% of the hands in that room will rise, two or three hands so? out of 200 clergy. And, and well, you, you find that generally. Just try it sometime. Talk to a, an audience. If they're not scholars up in the latest uh, discoveries, you're going to find hardly anybody knows about this. And I mm. don't know why. Uh, BAR's Public Archaeology Review, and they uh, six times a year come out with the greatest finds. And in 1992, when they announced this, they had two big articles on the Caiaphas ossuary, just south of the temple area uh, in the old city of Jerusalem, uh, Yosef Bar Kaifa, Yosef Bar Kaifa written on the other side. And this is the bone box, the ossuary. A bone box, yes, in which people were mm. buried in the first century A.D., not before, not afterwards. They're running out of space in the Mount of Olives, and so they used one of these bone boxes in which to inter the bones. And they found one beautifully carved, floating around the edges and two giant rosettes cut into one side. Mm. Uh, you could tell a VIP was inside there. And indeed, when they did the archaeology and they found inside the bones of a 65 or 70-year-old man, used a different test for that one and a different test for the other items found inside, and found it was 2,000 years old. And this is not a common name, Caiaphas. No, not the only time it's ever been found archaeologically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So a thrilling discovery. So here we have the name of the chief prosecutor on Good Friday, Caiaphas, who's mentioned in all four Gospels, mentioned in the Jewish rabbinical traditions that give us a lot more detail about him, and Josephus in particular gives us tremendous information on Caiaphas and Annas, his father-in-law, information that totally corresponds to the biblical record. And here we've got Pontius Pilate, who shows up in all four Gospels, who shows up in Josephus, twice or oh, a lot more in, but information about Pontius Pilate that we have in Josephus, and also in Tacitus, a Roman historian. What does it take to silence these critics who attack the Good Friday account? 
What more do they want? I think they want a, a color film of Jesus' trial. <laughs> and then they'd probably criticize the, the editing. Yeah, they could say it was all photoshopped these days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, I'd love to ask you about loads of things to do with archaeology, but um, you know, I have certain things I want to ask you, so I'm going to move on to the next question, which is um, about the New Testament itself. Now, obviously, this is the collection of writings in the Bible, uh, such as Gospels, letters, and other writings, which Christianity recognizes as being authoritative as our guide for information on Jesus. So my first question here is, why do Christians regard this particular set of writings as authoritative? I mean, how trustworthy are they, really? Well, there are three basic rules for canonicity. One is the material has to be written. Again, canonicity being what makes the final cut in terms of biblical accepted books. Uh, From the Greek canon, which means standard of of, uh, uh, use in terms of uh, incorporating literature. Uh, The first rule, of course, it's got to be written by an eyewitness or a near eyewitness. Now, that's to take care of a very reliable source named Luke. Uh, For half of his material, he's an eyewitness, Book of Acts. But for the other half, namely the Gospels, he is a near eyewitness interviewing the apostles and also Mother Mary. Uh, And so uh, the second rule, it's got to be in wide use in the early church in their liturgy. The church fathers have to talk about it and so forth. And the third rule is it's got to be coherent with the theology and the other writings. can't come along and say, well, Jesus, he worshipped at Quadrinity, the four people or something like that. You know, it's it, it got to be basic Christian theology. Well, I know a lot of people would say that uh, the time gap between the events of Jesus' life and the composition of the Gospels and the other New Testament materials, they would say, well, that's probably quite a long time, so perhaps we shouldn't trust them from that point of view. I mean, they would tend to point to that illustration of Chinese whispers, you know, where you start off with a message at the beginning of the line and it gradually changes as it goes along. And so a lot of people would say, well, you know, there's too much time in between the, the events and the writing down, so how can we really trust any of these writings anyway? Of all, I, I love the, the, the Chinese whispers, it's called. Yeah. I love it. That's you Brits. Uh, in the U.S., we call it telephone. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they use that as the illustration, of course. Uh, but this is not going to work for the first century simply because you'd have only one call to make, <laughs> not, not a whole a row of calls that's going to twist a message. And besides which, the idea of a long gap is pretty well old hat now in terms of scholarship. The whole trend is earlier and earlier writing of the Gospels, not a later and later writing. And it was, again, one of you Brits who did it. John A.T. Robinson uh, began a re-examination of redating the Gospels, the name of his book. Now, at first, conservatives didn't like Robinson too much because he wrote that book, Honest to God. But then toward the end of his life, he writes this book, Redating the Gospels. In fact, his last book was The Primacy of John, in which he claims that John, the fourth gospel, was the first one, which I love. Anyway, uh, the argument is catching a lot of fire among New Testament scholars, and that is, how do you explain Matthew then writing his gospel after the burning 
uh, of the temple and the fall of Jerusalem, and it was after 70 A.D., Matthew, above all, loves to show the prophecy fulfillment couplet all the time, doesn't he? Jesus did this, that might be fulfilled, which which the prophet said. Well, here Matthew quotes Jesus talking to the women in Jerusalem. Don't weep for me, weep for what's going to happen to the, the city. Well, the critics come along and say, obviously, this is put in his mouth later, because Jesus couldn't possibly have known about the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans. Well, first of all, that's Holcomb. I don't care if Jesus was only a man. He was a pretty bright guy, and he could just by political savvy alone predict the fall of Jerusalem. But here's the point. Matthew, in reporting that, would then have had to have added, later was fulfilled what Jesus predicted on the way to the cross when Jerusalem fell. Matthew doesn't write that because it hasn't happened yet. And that's the same for Mark and Luke. How could Luke ever fail to report Paul's trial before Nero? Hadn't happened yet. How could Luke fail to talk about the great fire of Rome in 64 and Christian persecutions hadn't happened yet. And by the way, this comes directly from a great American scholar, uh, David Noel Friedman. He was a Jew who converted to Christianity, who is the editor of the Anchor Bible Dictionary, this huge Bible dictionary of six volumes of 800 pages each dealing with all the place names in Scripture, the personal names, and so on. Now, he agrees that, that, frankly, this earlier dating of the Gospels raises fewer problems and solves more than any of the traditional liberal interpretations that everybody learns in seminary that the Gospels had to have been written after the fall of Jerusalem. So we're looking at then a date that is well before AD 70 when this took place, uh, because you, you say that Matthew must have written before this date, and then presumably Luke and Mark writing before, or well, certainly Mark writing before, um, this would push it back further. Um, how far, in your opinion, back do you think Mark is going, let's say? Well, I'd also like to point out that Luke is writing the book of Acts, and he then ends it with Paul in Rome, preaching for two years to people who want to come hear him, and then the book ends. Okay, well, this then has to be before the year 64 in the fall of Rome. And Paul takes his trip to Spain, according to earliest tradition there, in the year 63. Perfect timing. So I think Luke ends the book of Acts in 62, meaning he had to write the gospel before that, mm-hmm. and therefore in the 60s. And so that's not that far. And he's dependent upon Mark. Exactly. So that's pushing it even further back. Truly. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about, is this is really, really common these days, and I think it's uh, largely due to the popular writings of the textual scholar Bart Ehrman, and that is the criticism that the text of the New Testament has been corrupted over the centuries it's been transmitted down to us uh, through errors in copying and even, he says, some deliberate changes to the text by Christian scribes for all sorts of reasons. And uh, I, I think there's a modicum of truth to this, of course, but I do think it has been wildly exaggerated, and I personally think that uh, Elman himself is, is guilty of that. What's your view of this? Well, Ehrman is a case in point of a person making a towering snow-capped series of mountain ranges 
out of the flattest little molehill you ever saw. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, it's yeah. just unbelievable. Here's a, a person writing a cottage industry on, you know, forgery, terms of the gospel names, misquoting Jesus, and so on into the night. He unfortunately had two fundamentalistic Christian background. A Christian background, and therefore this drove him into reverse to a person attacking Christianity now. This happens, don't give a person an ultra-right-wing education or he may turn on you. Well, Bart Ehrman turned, and of course, uh, he has really made a whole career out of attacking the biblical record because there are copious errors or because there are changes in spelling or order of words or the punctuation. And of course there are. Any Christian who knows anything will know that the Greek New Testament, the Nestle version, for example, uh, at the bottom of each page will have a, what we call a critical apparatus, uh, which deals with what ancient uncial manuscript has this in, in great uh, capital majuscule letters like uh, the Sinaiticus or Alexandrinus or the, the Western text. And and then later on, what the papyri say in minuscule, which is a smaller uh, lettering uh, manuscripts. Now, here's the deal. When you have so many discovered now and collated and checked, the more you find, obviously, the more you're going to have the incidence of slight differences in spelling, punctuation, word order. Now, here's the important point. Not one of these differences has ever in any way affected a major teaching in Christianity or a minor teaching. None of them change anything. And so let me just give you a comparison. In all of ancient literature, to date, we have only 600 manuscript traditions on Homer's Iliad, which is the most widely available of all the sources in the ancient world. When the King James was uh, published in 1611, uh, the scholars were translating from six major New Testament Greek manuscripts, and that's all they had. By 1870, they had 2,000 manuscripts of, in Greek, in whole or in part, in the biblical record. And now, today, we have 5,700 manu Greek manuscripts in the New Testament, in whole or in part. And naturally, with so many of these, by permutations and combinations, you're certainly going to get more slight changes than words in the New Testament. That's the, the oh, the big jawbreaker that he, he always opens with. or the. Uh, That's the, right, indeed. Yeah, so more errors in the uh, manuscripts than there are <laughs> words in the New Testament. Yeah, I've heard that one, yes. Yeah, and uh, no big deal. No. And is it right that uh, many, many textual critics will actually say that we have the New Testament with something like 99% accuracy. Would you agree with that statistic? Oh, I'd agree with that, yeah, because the more of these outside you find, the more manuscripts you deal with, the better and better the textual critics are able 
to prize away the addenda or whatever slight additions and go back to the original autographs are called. We'll never find those. I'm sure they decomposed many centuries ago. But nevertheless, coming closer and closer, 99% is about right. You see exactly how the church fathers will quote these uh, scriptural sayings in their own language, in Latin, for example, and how they will, uh, again, agree or disagree. And by this very precise science, that's one case where I'll use critics very uh, admirably, and that is a textual critic. Mm. Uh, they do a great job in, in getting a better and better text for us. Yeah. Now, this one I want to ask you, uh, it doesn't seem quite so common these days, but a lot of people certainly used to say that the only way that we could really get at the historical data about Jesus in the Gospels is if you strip away all the miraculous elements in the accounts. Uh, because I guess so the suggestion goes, you know, we're, we're in a scientific age now, we know that miracles can't happen, so what we have to do is to strip those out and then we can get back to the bare bones and find out about the real Jesus. Now, do you think that that is a credible way of going about doing Jesus research? Well, that's how Rudolf Bultmann did, you know, and mythologizing <laughs> demythologizing description and so on. Yeah. Well, you know, right there, you are loading bias into your research. When you explore something, you have to keep an open mind. And people who say it's impossible, David Hume and Scotland, you know, it's impossible to do the miraculous, are right there loading a bunch of bias into their research. And so when you come with an open mind, then it's a far more honest bit of research. Now, I know nobody, I guess, comes at the material with a totally open mind. But in my own, I try to be as close as possible. And if I come to a biblical difficulty, I'll identify it. And I'll see if, if there's an error there or not and so forth. And it, you've got to be honest about it. Now, instead, I love to deal with hostile sources. Why? The criterion of embarrassment, I call it. This is a wonderful tool by which historians are able to prize truth out of any source. In other words, here you got a hostile source, doesn't like Christianity, but in arguing against it, it has to concede something that helps Christianity. Doesn't want to do it, but must, because everybody knew it was true at that time. Therefore, 2,000 years later, you know that that bit that was conceded is categorically absolutely true. I can squeeze more that's absolutely authentic out of hostile sources than friendly sources. Friendly sources, you couldn't tell for exaggerating. Hostile sources, yes. And is, is it right that there are some hostile sources in the rabbinical literature which actually suggest exactly. that... Indeed, Jesus was doing miraculous works. And let me give you an example. Sanhedrin mm -hmm. 43a in the collection of Jewish religious writings called the Talmud, the Mishnah section, the earliest part of the Talmud, where you have this arrest notice of Jesus, wanted, Yeshua Hanotsri, Joshua of Nazareth. He shall be stoned because he's practiced sorcery and lured Israel to apostasy. If anyone can say anything in his favor, let him declare it to the great Sanhedrin of Jerusalem. Now, notice the phrase, he's practiced sorcery. There you have an admission that Jesus is doing something supernatural. Now, sorcery 
and miracle are the same things in terms of supernatural if you're not talking source. If you're talking source, this is something extraordinary or supernatural, sorcery is, with help from below. If you're saying miracle, this is something extraordinary, supernatural, with help from above. But there, if you're not talking source, you have a common observable phenomenon that Jesus is doing something extraordinary or supernatural. Now, this is beyond debate. And therefore, I do love hostile sources because sometimes I can squeeze more truth out of them than friendly sources. Mm, fascinating. Okay, another big thing is that when people read through the so-called synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, well, when we do that, we find that they share quite a lot of material. But sometimes that material conflicts. You know, Matthew's version of a particular event might be slightly different from Mark's, let's say. And so people attempted to say, oh, well, look, you know, it's lo loads of contradictions here, so how can I take this seriously? So how do you understand what's going on here with these supposed contradictions between the Gospels? Well, I wouldn't mind even calling them contradictions. I, uh, generally, if you want to be kind of scripture, you call them variations. <laughs> but I don't care for contradictions. As, as an ancient historian, I'm thrilled that they're there. Take the resurrection, okay? The most important thing ever happens outside of Jesus himself showing up, Okay we have slight variations in those four accounts of the resurrection. I'd be very suspicious if there were only one lockstep, edited, agreed-upon version of what happened on the third day after Good Friday. Uh, then I'd know we have only one source for this greatest event. I'm thrilled that Matthew did not copy blindly from Mark, did not copy from Luke, did not copy from John, or whatever. As an ancient historian, uh, all ancient sources are going to have these variations, even the most reliable ones. Even Josephus, my favorite source, will contradict himself between his antiquities of the Jews and the Jewish war. And so what is the point? So what? Uh, people seeing the same things will report them differently, and they do. We had an experience of that in the classroom at Western Michigan University. I had a lot of fun staging uh, a fake professor coming in and disrupting my class. Uh, and here comes a friend of mine, a colleague who is bald and a great professor in his own right, who's talking about how you accumulate history to get a reliable using sources reliably. And he had, he had a rug on, a toupee, and had uh, grown in a false beard so nobody recognized him. And he did a fake interruption in my class. And then he left shaking his fist in my face. He was going to talk to the dean about this. And, of course, hey, the students are tuned in, believe me. Uh, two days later, when I met the class again, I really had to act here. I said the dean's reporting that somebody's been disrupting classes, and he wants a really careful report of what happened in our class. And then I kind of fumble around and let the students themselves come up with the idea that if we all wrote down what happened, that we'd get a more accurate version if only one tried it. And I could have blessed the gal who suggested that. I could have hugged her, because that's the answer I wanted. And so they all wrote down what happened 48 hours earlier. You would be shocked at the differences in their reports. This interrupter was 5'8 to 6'2. 
that his dress was reported differently. You know, I don't know what this does to the witness <laughs> situation in court, but, but people seeing the same thing, especially something that shocks them, will report it differently. And now you have somebody rising from the dead, okay? Hello? <laughs> Is this going to shock mm. people? Of course it will. See? And therefore this... Uh, it really, to me, affirms the fact of the resurrection, and then it also shows the honesty of the early church fathers and gospel writers. You know, if this happened today, big editorial committee at the publishing outfit, they'd have to decide, oh, let's see, who, who would like to see Mary Magdalene be the witness? Okay, all four gospels. Who else besides Mary? <laughs> they would get a laundered, edited version but here you have the early church being honest. And in the example that you brought up there, a very amusing example you brought up there, even though people saw things, in, well, remembered things in slightly different ways, nevertheless, they all, presumably, they all reported that somebody had come in and had caused a commotion. Nobody said, oh, well, it was an elephant that flew through the window or something. They, they all basically gave the, the same story, I guess. Is that right? Exactly. And it shows the, multi it shows, uh, the multiplicity of of uh, an ancient source saying that something happened is another affirmation of it really did happen, yes. Mm -hmm. Now, related to this is, a, I think, a more severe problem, um, that, that John's Gospel seems to be really quite different to the other Gospels in many ways. And sometimes people think, well, you know, if those events in John's Gospel really happened that are so different, not, not reported in the other Gospels, and if they were so important, let's say, such as uh, Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana or the, the raising of Lazarus, um, if those events were so important, how come they're not reported in the other Gospels? Does that suggest that John is not really interested in history? Is John perhaps making things up? One scroll. They didn't have whole Bibles in those days. They had one scroll to pass the good news on. Go roll out to about 33 feet or so. This is why Matthew and Book of Acts have 28 chapters. You don't have any more. You can't go beyond that because the scroll gets too big. Therefore, you will pick out from the common tradition your favorite episodes. And therefore, in John's Gospel, he finds something overlooked in the synoptics. That is the first miracle, changing water into wine. How come Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't report it? They're also cramped for space, and maybe they thought that Jesus providing party supplies <laughs> was not important enough a miracle to record. And so this is the reason why I'm glad we do have John come in later as a kind of a final editor. Uh, of what he thinks the Gospels ought to be. A and John is cramped even further because John wants to give us the detail on Holy Week. Half of the Gospel of John tells us what happened from Palm Sunday through Good Friday to Easter. And for that reason, with half his Gospels gone to that week, he's got to give us less of the other synoptically reported miracles that they have free time to report. And by the way, Mark has the shortest scroll of all. I've often said, couldn't somebody have blown a few shekels of the ancient world and gotten Mark a longer scroll? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
Now, I've got to ask you this. I know that Christmas is behind us, but uh, and uh, in some ways that's a bit of a relief. <laughs> um, but although it's a very enjoyable time, but I wanted to ask you uh, a couple of things about the, the birth narratives in the Gospels, uh, from which, of course, we get those familiar nativity scenes that we see each Christmas. Now, I, I don't want to ask you about nativity scenes, of course, with all their inaccuracies, you know, like we don't know whether there was a stable, the shepherds and the wise men shouldn't have been there at the same time. Um, the wise men weren't kings. We have no reason to believe there were just three of them and all that sort of thing but more fundamentally i want to ask uh, questions like you know why are the accounts of jesus birth in matthew and luke so different and why is it that mark and john don't have birth narratives okay let me answer the second question first we know why john doesn't have it he doesn't have space for it and don't forget in eusebius the earliest Christian church historian, he frankly tells us that John knew that Matthew and Luke had already done the job because he was concentrating on Holy Week, and he goes on to tell us what happens from Palm Sunday to uh, the resurrection. Uh, in the case of Mark, we know he has not enough space. Okay, but why, why are the yeah, accounts why are in Matthew and Luke so different? That's the one that people normally bring up. Right. Well, thank God they're different. If we had exactly the same order of events and the same cast of characters, then we would have only one version of what happened. Thank God that Matthew didn't copy from Luke or vice versa. This way, we've got the parameters of Luke talking about the shepherds and the the kind of the lower echelon view of what happened at Bethlehem. In Matthew's case, we have the, the higher view. Uh, in terms of the uh, intelligentsia, the Gentile world coming across, and so on. Now, to be sure, it is not that difficult to harmonize the Gospels. Oh, the critics make such a fuss about it. Luke says they went back to Nazareth. Yes, Luke might have, had he studied further, been able to say after the flight to Egypt they went to Nazareth. I know, I know, but please, let's cut these sources a little slack, shall we, and not be so demanding. Mm. Well, you say that Matthew is looking at the uh, the, the the more elitist end of uh, the, the story by mentioning the the magi, the wise men. Um, some people say, well, that's a good reason to believe that that is not an historical event because it's really an invented story. It's trying to echo uh, prophetic words in Psalm seventy-two, where it says that the kings of distant shores will bring tribute to God's king and will present him gifts. You see, and what Matthew is doing because he wants to speak to his Jewish audience, he wants to impress them. You see, he's fabricating this tradition to to show that it's connected to the Old Testament tradition. There, what do you make of that kind of argument? Well, it's an interesting argument. We found a parallel there. Uh, I'm sure that Matthew would say, well, it surely was, it it turned out that way. That's Matthew's main claim all the time. Jesus did this, that might be fulfilled what the prophet said. Okay. And in this case, David was in his prophetic mode. Mm. But what bothers me about the critics, how could supposedly wise men traipse across the desert following a star and have him come to Bethlehem and ask that too perfect question, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We've seen the star in the east come to worship him. Those magi have never been in touch with Jewish traditions. And I admit that I found that first a difficult challenge to answer. Until later on in my research, Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. burned the temple and took into captivity in Babylon not all the Jews. He didn't commit genocide. He took only the elite, 
the scholars, the rabbis, uh, those who were heads of uh, whatever, and took them to Babylon. Yeah, but they all returned, didn't they, under Ezra? No, they did not. The majority of Jews stayed on in Babylon because they were developing roots, uh, and they would have been in touch with the Magi, who were well-known, not the three or more of the Nativity account, and they would have been specialists also in comparative religious history. They would have known rabbis across the street. Would you think then that these Magi would be basically political ambassadors sent from the East with uh, you know, gifts of appeasement, really, for whichever king might be born in the Israel area? That might be the case, or the motive might have been sheer curiosity or, or true religion. You know, Matthew, if he had interest, could probably have given us a whole gospel on how the Magi found out. But here's the point. Let me just finish that argument. And that is, what is the collection of Jewish sacred writings? It's the Babylonian Talmud, isn't it? Well, <laughs> hello, when was this thing edited? 400 A.D., for a thousand years after Ezra, there are Jews in Babylon with their sacred traditions with whom the Magi would have been conversing as scholars. And so when you get in all play in all the evidence, then these problems are solved. The, the picture I'm getting is there's a lot more knowledge and understanding in the ancient world than we generally tend to give the ancients credit for. Um, there's one thing which the last thing here, really, that I have to ask you, and that's, I think, the, the thorniest question about the birth narratives, and that's the question of the, the census and its timing in relation to a certain Quirinius, the governor of Syria. Now, let me just uh, ask you this in, in some detail here so that people can understand if they're not familiar with this problem. Luke's Gospel says that Augustus Caesar uh, issued a decree that all the world should be registered, and I, I, straight away I'm going to dismiss all the nitpicking about the phrase all the world. It clearly means the Roman world. But it also says that this census took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And this is a problem, as you well know, because Quirinius uh, didn't become governor of Syria until the year 7 AD. 6 AD. 6 AD. And Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus was born uh, before the death of Herod the Great, which is dated uh, 4 BC. So on the face of it, it looks like Luke is saying Jesus was born in or after 6 AD, and Matthew is saying that he was born in or before 4 BC. And uh, most people, I believe, say that it's Luke who's got this wrong. Now, I know there are a number of ways of, of solving this problem. Uh, what's your view on how it should be solved? Uh, now, as a professor of ancient history, I wouldn't care one bit if Luke made a boo-boo here. So what? I find Luke the most accurate first-century historian I've ever come across. He's better than Josephus is, who contradicts himself from time to time between his two works. And so that wouldn't bother me one bit if Luke made a boo-boo here. But however, all classical scholars agree that that passage could read, uh, this was the earlier census that was taken before Quirinius became governor of Syria. The protos in Greek can be used adverbially, in which case there is no problem whatever. And then I threw into the hopper another translation that I prized out of it, and it goes like this. This census was first completed when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Uh, that That is also a faithful translation of the Greek, and 10 years to take a census, that'd be pretty quick. 
in Roman terms, because you know how long it took them to take a census up in Gaul, which is a later France? No, I have no idea. Forty years. So ten years is pretty quick. <laughs> Forty years. Forty. Yeah, you bet. Mm-hmm. These things don't take place in one year, and we have the numbers uh, via computer. See, uh, No, not at all. So, uh, again, if Luke did make an error, so what? And it's only the very narrow fundamentalists, I think, who would say it's impossible and so forth. And according to the original autographs, there's only one Easter story. You really don't need that. But, uh, but I'm not saying, in, indeed, even Luke made an error here. Yeah. Okay, so I've got to ask you finally then, why you believe that it really is so important to do the kind of work that you've been doing throughout your career? Because obviously you've dedicated yourself to this uh, for your whole life, really. Because there were some people will say, you know, I, I personally think they're mistaken in saying it, but I know some people will say, you know, looking for evidences of Christianity, uh, looking at the text, looking at archaeology, this is all pointless because at the end of the day, it's all about faith. We don't need evidence, we just need to accept it by faith. So bearing that kind of criticism in mind, which I I hear from time to time, why do you personally think that this Jesus research and related research is so important? Well, as a matter of fact, it's very, very, very current to say that. Uh, Reza Aslan, you may have heard of him, he wrote this book on Jesus as a, a zealot, uh, he says, well, the Gospels aren't out for history, they're out for truth. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. Truth means true fact, authenticity, genuine history, as far as I'm concerned. And I am, really did come at this, despite my being a Christian, with an open mind. And if I had found any evidence in the ancient world that truly did not correlate with the biblical evidence, I'd be honest enough to tell people about it. And if there were a lot of such evidence, I'd have been very ready to give up my faith. I'm sorry. I'm, 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 maybe a strange person. I mean, well, I don't think so, because, I mean, even Paul says something along those lines, doesn't he? He said, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, then, you know, it's all futile. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, my favorite disciple, by the way, is Thomas. So I showed you what a strange person I am. No, I don't mind Thomas's probing questions. And in fact, very often, Julian, people will misunderstand my approach. Some sweet old lady in the back of the room will say, oh, Dr. Meyer isn't faith enough. Do we need all this additional proof? And I, I answer, yeah, faith is enough. And you don't need this. But I am so sick and tired of having our faith attacked from the outside today mm. by qualified scholars who just love to go blind to all the positive evidence and so negatively to run with all the minuscule negative evidence that they're being totally unscholarly and very disgusting in terms of bias. And I just want fair play when it comes to biblical investigation. And you have written, as I said at the beginning of the interview, you've written many, many, many scholarly works. You've written popular works as well, some historical novels based upon biblical materials. So I'm just wondering if you could tell us perhaps uh, some of your, what you consider to be your most significant scholarly works and also your popular works as well. Well, probably my most important book is called In the Fullness of Time, A Historian Looks at Christmas, Easter, and the Early Church. Uh, This is a book, and half of it is comparing the sacred and secular evidence we have on Jesus, and the second half of the book is the same as we find in the case of St. Paul. Uh, Then I've done an original condensation of Josephus, along uh, with pictorial editions and commentary, uh, which is called 
Josephus, the essential writings, Josephus, the essential works, two forms of color version and black and white. Then I've done the same thing with the Eusebius, the earliest church history, only that's a word-for-word translation of Eusebius's Greek. He gives this wonderful account of the first three centuries of the church, or the first two and a half, you might say. Uh, then I've also done two uh, historical novels that are 95% history, each of them. One is Pontius Pilate, which gives us the untold historical political background of what happened on Good Friday in terms of the crucifixion. We bring Pontius Pilate's life to bear here in the discussion. And there are a lot of things that aren't told us in the Bible about Pilate. Well, Josephus tells them, and we explain why Pilate almost had to do what he did on Good Friday. And then the flames of Rome. We do the same thing with the second most important trial in history, which is Paul before Nero the one that Luke didn't report to us. And on the basis of all the evidence we have from the early church, I retell that particular account. Then finally, I did shift to fiction. I wrote a book called A Skeleton in God's Closet. Now, this thing is only a negative view of what happened on resurrection morning. This is feast for the unbelievers until I hit him between the eyes in the last chapter. (laughs) (laughs) And then a successor there was more than a skeleton in which I deal with what would happen if Jesus came back in an interim advent, not the final advent? How would the church react? Uh-huh. That one's a lot of fun. Third one is the Constantine Codex in that trilogy. Uh, we're getting a name away from the name skeleton because it's kind of macabre. And here we have an early codex. That's the first kind of bound Bible. And here we have the protagonist discovering a Bible with 67 books, not 66. <laughs> yeah, intriguing. It's a lot of fun. Well, lovely. I shall make uh, notes to some of those in the show notes for today so that people can go and find those books. And uh, I thank you ever so much for spending all this time with us, talking all these things through. I mean, you've given us a tremendous amount of information, and I feel like each one of these sections, I could just ask you more and more about it, and we could do this interview over and over again about each paragraph, you know. But uh, obviously, we've not got time to do that. So thank you ever so much for answering all my questions and giving us so much detail. And uh, it was a great pleasure to talk to you, Dr. Meyer. Thank you very much. Well, Julian, I enjoyed being interviewed by you because you have done your homework and your questions were excellent and very, very well based on the sources. Thank you ever so much for joining us, Dr. Meyer. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.